0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, Genesis chapter 46. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 46 for our time of study in God's Word. This morning we're doing a verse by verse series through the book of Genesis. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Genesis chapter 46, verse 31. And my goal today is to cover verses 31 through chapter 47, verse 12. And the title of the message this morning is Settling Legally in Goshen. Settling Legally in Goshen. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you really wanted to do something, but as you thought about it, you were like, this is probably not going to be okay with my authorities, but it might be. There's a chance that it might be okay. So um, I'm going to go ahead and do this and ask for forgiveness later if I need to. I think all of us have been in situations like that. Um, And Joseph is actually in a situation exactly like that in our passage today And he chooses not to just act now and ask for forgiveness later, but to do the right thing in the right way. And there's uh, wonderful things for us to observe and learn from in this passage uh, this morning. Last week, we studied the story of Jacob and his family's big move from Canaan to the land of Egypt And in verse uh, 28 of Genesis 46, we read that Judah led the family on the last leg of that journey from Canaan to Egypt until they came into the land of Goshen, which was a a particular uh, stretch of land uh, in the northeastern part of, of Egypt. In fact, I thought I had a map, but I guess I don't. Um, the narrator who is giving us this account could have ended the story there, but he doesn't. What we find in our text today is a detailed accounting of how it happened that Jacob's family came to settle permanently in the land of Goshen through Joseph's influence and with the Pharaoh's permission. And that's pretty much what most of Genesis 46 verse 31 all the way through chapter 47, verse 12, are about 15 verses in all. And it's these 15 verses that we will focus on this morning. You will recall that Jacob's family has been invited by both Joseph and by Pharaoh uh, to come to Egypt. These are the two most powerful men in the land of Egypt. Uh, And this is a time when famine is ravaging the land of Canaan and Egypt, but Egypt has plenty because they have food stored up. In Genesis 45, Joseph uh, speaks to his brothers and he says, hurry up and go up to my father who is in Canaan at the moment and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have, and there will, I will also provide for you. So we see that even at this early point that Joseph has it in his heart for his family to live in Goshen, and he talks like he's pretty confident that this will happen. Even Pharaoh himself gives instructions for uh, Jacob and his family to come to Egypt. He speaks to Joseph and he says, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beast and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Pharaoh then tells Joseph, to tell his brothers in verse 20, do not concern yourselves with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So how do you refuse an invitation like that? Last week we saw how Jacob accepts these invitations and he takes 70 of his children and his grandchildren along with their wives and he makes the move of his life from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt, and they end up stopping in Goshen based on the instruction that Joseph had given to them through his brother uh, Judah. And it is in Goshen that Joseph and Jacob, we saw last Sunday, have their emotional reunion. After 22 years of being apart, at the end of this reunion, Jacob speaks to Joseph and says let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. Well Joseph isn't ready to let his father die just yet. He's all business at this point thinking about how to make it happen that the family can get the necessary permissions from Pharaoh for Jacob's family to settle in Goshen permanently and that's what our passage is all about today. Now, I know that most of you did not wake up this morning, and the burning question in your life is, how did it happen that Jacob's family ended up settling in Goshen when they got to Egypt? These are not questions we would normally be agitating over, but the writer of Genesis wants to linger over this aspect of the story, and there's a reason several reasons that he does so, and there's much profit for us as we let ourselves roll with the text of the Bible and let the Spirit of God lead us into the things he wants us to look at, even if we weren't asking questions about it. Basically, as we look at the passage today, we're going to observe five developments in the story of Jacob's family settling legally in the land of Goshen. And the first of these developments is that Joseph prepares his family to petition Pharaoh to let them live in Goshen. So he's preparing them for an interview that they're going to have with the Pharaoh. Observe what Joseph says to his family at this point. Verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Joseph is telling his family that when he talks to Pharaoh, he's going to emphasize the fact that they are shepherds, which is synonymous with being keepers of livestock. You can see that in the text. And part of the reason that Joseph wants to communicate this fact to Pharaoh is to assure Pharaoh that his brothers and their families do not intend to be a burden on the state. They have skills and they have livestock and they that they brought with them. Nonetheless, uh, Joseph is wanting very clearly to communicate to the Pharaoh that they need a place to dwell that would provide good pasture for their livestock and sheep. So Joseph tells his brothers what he'll be saying to Pharaoh along these lines. Next, he tells his brothers what he wants them to say to Pharaoh. Listen to what he says to his brothers in verse 33. He says, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Stop right there for just a moment. Uh, Pharaoh is going to ask this question because he is looking out for the welfare of the country that he governs. Pharaoh is going to want to know what skills Joseph's brothers have. Joseph also knows that Pharaoh will likely be trying to figure out how to gain the services of the people in Joseph's family, perhaps thinking about how he could assimilate them into Egyptian life the way that he has assimilated Joseph. And perhaps Pharaoh would even want to have some of them working in the government with him. And that would make sense. I mean, after all, if Joseph is such an amazing asset to Pharaoh serving in his position, then Joseph's family must be a gold mine of men who can serve Pharaoh and other parts of Egyptian society. So he'll want to be asking this question. And Joseph knows this. So Joseph speaks to his brothers and says, When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say... Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. In other words, we're shepherds. We're keepers of livestock. It's all we've ever done, and it's what our ancestors have done. That is to be their answer to Pharaoh. Now, notice also that Joseph is teaching his brothers about palace protocol in the presence of Pharaoh. He doesn't tell his brothers to say, we have been keepers of livestock, but to say, your servants have been keepers of livestock. That's how you talk to Pharaoh in his court. And we'll see that as this continues. Anyway, Joseph instructs his brothers to tell Pharaoh that they are keepers of livestock for two reasons. He says at the end of verse 34 that you may live in the land of Goshen, which evidently provided ideal pasture for livestock. But then he says, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. That's surprising, isn't it? The fact that every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians is a very odd reason for Joseph to want his family to tell Pharaoh, that's what we do. We're shepherds. The Hebrew word that is translated loathsome is the word that is translated abomination many times elsewhere throughout the Old Testament. Now, as to why the Egyptians had such a low view of shepherds, no one really knows for sure. We do know that the Egyptians were obsessed with cleanliness. So they likely viewed shepherding as a dirty job that they were very happy to let foreigners do for them. So being a shepherd was tantamount to being a foreigner in Egypt. Foreigners who were looked down on by the people of Egypt who have been known throughout history as being a racist people. At the very least, Egyptians viewed shepherds as foreign rednecks and hillbillies and preferred to remain aloof from them. But whatever the reason, shepherds, Joseph says, were looked down on by the Egyptians at this time. And Joseph actually gives this fact as the reason that he wants his brothers to tell Pharaoh that they are shepherds or keepers of livestock, which is synonymous with being shepherds. He tells them to tell Pharaoh that they're keepers of livestock. Look again at the end of verse 34, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. What is the relationship? of these two reasons that Joseph gives here at the end of verse 34. Well, the relationship is found in the fact that most Egyptians dwelt to the west of the Nile and on the western part of the Nile Delta. Goshen was on the eastern portion of the Nile Delta and was likely relatively unpopulated at this time. It seems that Goshen had two things going for it in Joseph's mind. Number one, it was good land for livestock. And number two, it was fairly isolated from the rest of Egyptian society. So evidently, Joseph knows Pharaoh. He knows that once Pharaoh learns that his brothers are shepherds, Pharaoh is not going to want to put them in the middle of Egyptian society, but he will put them in an area That provides rich pasture for their flocks and put them towards the outer fringe of Egyptian society, assigning them land on the margin of Egypt in an area like Goshen. This would allow Jacob and his family in the years to come to flourish without too much co-mingling with Egyptian society, which is part of what Joseph seems concerned about here. Joseph seems very concerned that his family not become assimilated and intermarry with the Egyptians, but he wants them to maintain a separate and distinct identity. As the Jewish Hamash says, he wants them to settle in a place where they would be apart from the corrupting influence of Egyptian society so that they can preserve their own identity as God's people. So Joseph wants his brothers to be up front with the Pharaoh about their occupation. As one writer says, Joseph is encouraging his family to be absolutely honest with Pharaoh regarding their occupation. They are not to try to be something that they are not. They are not to lie on their application form for the land of Goshen. They are to trust the Lord that their honesty will lead to the outcome that the Lord intends. And the good outcome that Joseph wants for them is A, to live in Goshen, and B, not to be assimilated into Egypt. But to be a separate people. So that's the strategy. Now comes time for the execution, which brings us to the second development in this story of how Jacob's family comes to settle legally in the land of Goshen. Number two, Joseph and his brothers execute their plan to petition Pharaoh to let them live in Goshen. Observe what happens in verse one of Genesis 47 and following The text says, then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan and behold, they are in the land of Goshen, basically waiting for instructions. Joseph is telling Pharaoh exactly what he told his family that he would tell the Pharaoh, only here he's specifying that they are presently In Goshen, which is where Joseph had told them to go for the time being, awaiting instructions as to what to do next. Clearly, Joseph is, there's an element of shrewdness here. Joseph is wanting Pharaoh to think that, and they're already in Goshen, the easiest thing to do would be to just let them stay where they already are. After all, they're already there. Why make them move somewhere else when Goshen will work? Just fine. One writer says that we learn from Joseph's example that shrewdness is not alien to holiness. We see that here. Then observe what Joseph does next. Verse two. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, here we are. What is your occupation? Joseph really knows Pharaoh very well. Joseph was right in assuming that Pharaoh would ask his brothers this question. His brothers are ready with a reply. Verse 3, so they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. This is exactly what Joseph had instructed them to say, all the way down to the detail of referring to themselves as Pharaoh's servants. In the court of Pharaoh, you didn't use the first-person Singular or plural pronoun without swiftly assuring Pharaoh that the we that you are talking about are Pharaoh's servants. This was the protocol in Pharaoh's court, and Joseph's brothers are following that to the letter here, as Joseph had told them to. They continue in verse 4. The text says they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And again, notice that they say there's no pasture for your servants. Please let your servants live in the land of Goshen again. This is the way you talk to Pharaoh in his court. And I emphasize this again for a reason that you'll see in a few minutes. Notice that they describe themselves as having come to sojourn in the land. The word sojourn means to live as an alien in a land that is not your homeland, in a land that you are not a citizen of. And in speaking the way that they speak here, they're telling Pharaoh that they don't intend to live in Egypt permanently as a people. They don't int- intend to assimilate into Egyptian life and become Egyptians. They're not asking to become citizens of Egypt, they're simply seeking temporary residency in Egypt. And they're seeking relief from the famine in the land of Canaan. They are refugees from a famine-ravaged land, and they're simply asking Pharaoh for permission to come and live as aliens in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And talking about the famine in Canaan and in asking Pharaoh to let them live in Goshen, Joseph's brothers are actually going beyond what Joseph had told them to say, But they're definitely capturing Joseph's intent. They're being very upfront with their situation and their request to Pharaoh. And fortunately, Pharaoh is disposed to grant their request, which brings us to the third development in this story of how Jacob and his sons came to settle in the land of Goshen legally. Number three, Pharaoh grants permission for Joseph to settle his family in Goshen. Observe Pharaoh's response in verses 5 and 6. And his verbiage here uh, has the feel of a decree that's being spoken so that scribes can write down his words for the record. Verse 5, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. This is Joseph's dream scenario. God has turned the heart of Pharaoh toward this wonderful outcome. Pharaoh gives two orders that amount to one. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land And number two, let them live in the land of Goshen. Evidently, Goshen was the best of the land of Egypt. You get the sense that the land of Goshen was some kind of federally protected land. In modern day terminology, much like our national parks are today. And Pharaoh is now releasing this federal land for Joseph to settle his family in. But Pharaoh does make one request, which we might have anticipated. At the end of verse 6, he says to Joseph, And if you know of any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. We know from historical evidence that the pharaohs had a lot of livestock. Ancient records indicate, for example, that Ramesses III, who reigned around 1150 B.C. employed 3,264 men, mostly foreigners, to take care of his herds. The pharaoh who is speaking here in Genesis 46 would be happy to hire any of Joseph's brothers to tend to his livestock, especially given the fact that they are foreigners who could do a good job at something that Egyptians didn't want to do. Whether Joseph took Pharaoh up on his offer is unknown to us. My guess is that he did not take Pharaoh up on his offer, given how concerned Joseph is that his family live separated lives in Goshen. Nonetheless, things are going beautifully so far. Everything has been done in an above-board manner. Joseph has now obtained the legal right to settle his family in Goshen. But Joseph to his credit, is concerned about more than simply getting what he wants from Pharaoh. He also wants to perform a good faith gesture that ends up blessing Pharaoh in return. And this brings us to the fourth development in this story of how Jacob and his family come to settle legally in the land of Goshen. Number four, Joseph brings his father to Pharaoh to bless him. Joseph brings his Father to Pharaoh to bless him. Observe what happens in verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. We don't appreciate this in our culture today. I mean, we bless people all the time. Someone sneezes and what do we say? Bless you. Um, we're not really making any kind of a social statement by that, like, hey, I'm better than you, and that's why I'm blessing you here. But, guys, this is actually a stunning move on Jacob's part, and it's just as stunning that the Pharaoh would allow himself to receive this blessing from Jacob. In blessing Pharaoh, Jacob is behaving literally as Pharaoh's superior and he's harnessing that superior status for Pharaoh's benefit by blessing him. We know this from Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek blessing Abraham. And he tells us what that fact reveals about Melchizedek. In Hebrews 7, 7, the writer of Hebrews says, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by What? The greater. Pay attention to those words. The lesser is blessed by the greater. And if we take that truism and apply it to what is happening right now between Jacob and Pharaoh, then it makes clear that the most powerful person in this episode is whom? Jacob, the man of God. And the fact that Pharaoh would allow himself to be blessed by Jacob shows us that Pharaoh recognizes Jacob's superior greatness. This is Pharaoh, who in Egyptian theology believes himself to be a god. And he's letting himself be the recipient of a blessing from this foreign man. After Jacob blesses Pharaoh, they have an extended conversation and we don't know all that was said between them in this conversation, but evidently there was a whistleblower in the room at the time and he or she leaked the following exchange between Pharaoh and Jacob that we find in verses 8 through 10. Observe the exchange that Happens in verse eight. I've been watching way too much news lately. (laughs) Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? Now, some people might consider that to be a rude question for the Pharaoh to ask Jacob. But keep in mind that Joseph is about 40 years old right now. And it had to have been startling for Pharaoh to behold a 130-year-old man coming into the room as Joseph's father. And so he asked, how many years have you lived? Observe Jacob's reply in verse 9. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130 few and unpleasant have been the years of my life nor have they attained to attain the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning you notice anything missing there before we look at the specifics of what jacob is saying here notice that three times jacob uses the personal pronoun my and never once does he refer to himself as pharaoh's servant Protocol would call for Jacob to say the years of your servants sojourning, the years of your servants' life, or your servants' fathers lived. But commentators make note of the fact that Jacob doesn't use that language of servitude when talking to Pharaoh. The commentator Derek Kidner says that Jacob here is sovereign, old-age personified, unimpressed by rank and deliberate. Maybe at an earlier stage of Jacob's life, he would have worried about offending a pharaoh, but he doesn't worry about that kind of thing anymore. In fact, what we have in verse 9 is Jacob speaking as the true superior in this situation. And Pharaoh seems to take no offense at Jacob, showing him the respect that he is due for his many years and showing him the respect that he is due as the father of Joseph, who is the deliverer of Egypt. Anyway, when Pharaoh asks Jacob how many years he has lived, Jacob answers Pharaoh's question in an interesting way. He says, the years of my sojourning are 130. And that's a lot of years. But then he says, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their Sojourning. It may seem odd for us to hear a 130-year-old man say that his years have been few, but Jacob is using the word few comparatively. He seems to think that he is going to die soon, which means that he will die much earlier than his grandfather died at the age of 175 and much earlier than his own father died at the age of 180 So, Jacob's years are few compared to their lifespans. He knows he's not going to make it for much longer. Jacob also describes his years as literally bad or unpleasant. And in saying this, Jacob isn't complaining, he's simply explaining why he is a 130 year old man who won't be living for too much longer. Or as long as his father and his grandfather lived. When you think about it, guys, Jacob has had his share of troubles in his life, right? And we've seen many of those troubles. He had a brother who threatened to kill him, forcing him to run for his life from Canaan up to Haran. He was tricked on his wedding night into marrying the wrong woman. That would age a man. After he had worked for seven years for Rachel, he worked for 20 years under Laban's deceptive ways and harsh conditions. On top of that, he had had a wrestling match with God himself that left him limping on his thigh ever since. After that, Jacob had to deal with the pain of his daughter Dinah being raped. And then one of his sons, or of his sons, combining together and slaying all of the men of Shechem in response, causing Jacob all sorts of anxiety and forcing him to uproot and move to another location. Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, dies when they are on the final leg of their journey back to Jacob's father's house in Canaan. After that, Jacob's son, Reuben, violated Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, And then Jacob loses his son, Joseph. And for 22 years, he thinks his son was torn to pieces by a wild animal. Even after Joseph's disappearance, Jacob experiences two grandsons being killed for being wicked before the Lord. On top of that, Jacob has just lived through two years of severe famine, forcing him now to uproot and moved to Egypt at the age of 130. Jacob indeed has experienced a lot of blessing from the Lord throughout the years of his life, but he's tasted his share of pain as well, which leaves him as a 130 year old, a tired old man who's convinced that he won't be living much longer. And that's why he tells Pharaoh that his Years have been few and unpleasant and why he knows that he won't be living as long as his father and his grandfather did. Observe in verse 10 what Jacob does at the end of this brief conversation. Verse 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. He blesses Pharaoh again. In Genesis 12, God had promised that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis 28, that blessing of Abraham was given to Jacob. And Jacob now here is harnessing his blessed status for Pharaoh's benefit and blessing Pharaoh. In Genesis 12, God had told Abraham that he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And Pharaoh has been very good to Abraham's descendants. He's been good to Joseph, and he's now being good to Jacob's family. And Jacob now returns the favor by speaking two blessings, two benedictions over Pharaoh. And Pharaoh seems more than happy to receive these blessings. Joseph's brothers came into Pharaoh's presence to ask for a favor. Jacob, the patriarch, comes into Pharaoh's presence to deliver a favor, to give him a double blessing. And Pharaoh happily receives this double blessing from this elderly man of God. And with that done, Joseph can now focus on getting his family settled in the land of Goshen, which leads us to the final development in this story of Jacob and his family settling legally in the land of Goshen. Number five, Joseph settles his family in the land of Goshen and provides for them there. Observe what happens in verse 11. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession In the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered. In other words, he gave them a permanent inheritance of land that was theirs for however long they wanted to stay. As for the land that Joseph gave his family, the text says that he settled them in the best of the land, which is the second time in this chapter that we have seen this expression. This land truly was the best of the land. And God wants us to know they got the best. This land of Goshen was later known as the land of Ramesses in the days of Moses and beyond his days. So Moses, who's writing this, uses this name, the land of Ramesses, Here, so that his readers would make no mistake as to the part of Egypt that he is talking about. The land of Goshen is the same thing as the land of Ramses, which was also the very best of the land of Egypt, where Joseph now settles his family. And the narrator wants us to know that all this was done. Look at the end of verse 11. Just as Pharaoh had ordered. Nothing apart from Pharaoh's knowledge is happening here. Pharaoh had given the orders for Joseph to settle his family here, give them this deed of land to live on. Joseph is acting completely within the confines of the decrees, the orders that Pharaoh had given. If anyone ever in the years to come had any doubts about Israel's rights to this land in Goshen, all they had to do was read the legal transcripts of Pharaoh's decrees. And there was no higher authority that could overrule. And in the days that followed, so long as the famine continued, we're told in verse 12 that Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food. And the new American standard says, according to their little ones, literally the Hebrew reads, according to the mouth of the little ones. In modern-day English, we would say according to how many mouths each had to feed. And Joseph is providing for them as his own family, paying the necessary fees out of his own pocket in order to draw food from the storehouses and provide for all of his family who are living in Goshen. And we're going to stop right there in the narrative, okay? And we'll pick up next week. But I want us to take a little bit of time as we wrap things up this morning to savor some things that we see on display in this passage. First of all, in verse 4, let me take you back to this verse. Joseph's brothers say to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. And as we learned earlier, the word sojourn speaks of an alien, an immigrant, someone who is temporarily living in a land that is not their homeland. It's a key word that shows up again and again throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it is striking how often God refers back to Israel's time as immigrants in the land of Egypt or sojourners in the land of Egypt as a reason why the Israelites should show kindness to the immigrants among them. In Exodus twenty-two twenty-one, look at these passages. God says to the Israelites, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Don't take advantage of an alien in your land. In Exodus 23, 9, God says to his people, and you shall not oppress a sojourner since you yourselves know the feelings of a sojourner, for you also were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In Leviticus 19.34, God says to the Israelites, the sojourner who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 10.19, God says to his people, So show your love for the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God keeps pointing back in later history to this time that we're looking at right now as something of a guide and a motivation for what the Israelites' disposition should be towards sojourners or aliens or immigrants among them. It means something to God that this Pharaoh allows Jacob and his family to sojourn, to come into Egypt and to sojourn here. And God wanted the people of Israel and the centuries that followed to pay that act of kindness forward. He wanted the Israelites to never forget what they felt as aliens in a foreign land And he wanted them to let that memory cause them to have sympathy toward aliens in their own land. As Christians, we should be deeply grateful for this moment in the text of Genesis. We should be deeply grateful that God moved Pharaoh's heart to allow Jacob's family to live in Egypt and thereby preserve the lineage of the Messiah so that we could have a savior today. Guys, this is our story that we're looking at. The pivotal moment in our salvation story. From a human standpoint, our salvation story involves a pagan ruler allowing God's people to live as refugees in his land, and that should mean something to us. That's something that we ought to want to honor and even pay forward just as the Israelites were called to do in the centuries to come. As Christians, we should have a heart for the immigrant, for the alien, for the sojourners among us. We should want to find a place in our society for refugees who flee their home country in search of freedom and opportunity in our country. We should be supportive of legal and reasonable means by which such people can be welcomed into our country and come under the influence of the gospel here and even experience the love of Christ through us. Having said that, what we see in our passage today, we should also observe is an example of legal immigration. We see the beauty of doing things right by the law of the land, even if it's a pagan land. There's no sneaking around by Jacob and his family, no violation of laws, no deception. This is legal immigration, which is a beautiful thing to be advocated for among God's people as opposed to illegal immigration. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And in our passage today, Joseph honors Pharaoh's authority and makes sure his brothers do as well. And they show this respect for governmental authority by submitting the proper petition before Pharaoh and by making sure that they did nothing that was not duly authorized by Pharaoh who represented the law of the land. This took trust on Joseph's part and his brother's part. To their credit, they believe that if God wants us to live legally in the land of Goshen, then he will turn Pharaoh's heart toward approving it, and they behaved accordingly. Years ago, we had a member of our church here at Cornerstone who was here in this country illegally, They had overstayed their visa and chose to stay in the United States after their visa had expired, even though they knew they were breaking the law in doing so. A handful of people in our church devoted a sizable amount of time working with this individual, going to various agencies seeking to figure out a way to work things out for this person to be able to be in this country legally. I myself was on the phone with this individual's pastor back in their home country trying to gain a better understanding of their situation back home. We turned over every stone, spoke with immigration attorneys, and humanitarian organizations trying to figure out some way for this person to be able to stay in this country legally. And ultimately, we struck out, and we found out that the only way for them to be in this country legally was to return to their home country and then eventually apply for reentry. When we came to that realization, we met with this person and offered to be a help. We offered to pay for their plane ticket home so that they could then go through the process of applying for reentry. We assured this individual that we stood ready to expedite things in any way that might be needful, but that we believed that it was important that this individual honor the laws of our land. And sadly, it was at this point that this individual chose not to follow our counsel or receive our help any longer. With hindsight, I have zero regrets about our attempts to help this person to be here legally and to provide for them in the various ways that we did I also have no regrets about counseling them to abide by the laws of our land. It's important that Christians be obedient to the laws of their land. Everyone is well served when this is done. No one is well served ultimately when this is not done. It is not becoming of a Christian to have to sneak around and conceal the truth about themselves in order to live in a place where they have no legal permission to stay. And I'm grateful that we see none of that happening in our passage today. I'll leave that for you to discuss in your care groups today. (laughs) But hey, as you do discuss it, don't consult your politics And let that determine what you're going to say about this. Consult the gospel. And let the gospel shape your politics. And even the way you discuss matters such as this. And whatever you might have to say, don't say it from a position of final arrival. I've got a ton to learn about this subject speak as a fellow traveler on an unfinished journey who still has much to learn from God's word and from your brothers and sisters on this topic that has proven so divisive today. On another front, as we look at our passage today, we see in our passage the goodness of God as he orchestrates things in such a way that Jacob's family got to settle in the best of the land. That's just crazy. It's God's plan that they multiply exceedingly in the land of Egypt and become a great nation. He's already told Jacob that, and he now here is setting them up to succeed in that way by providing this land for them, moving the heart of a pagan ruler to allow them to live here. This is the way that God works. God always situates his people perfectly in the place where they need to be in order to fulfill the destiny that he has given to them. And the question we would ask is, does God do the same for us? Does God give us the very best of what we need? Well, where it really counts, yes, he does. He may not give you the best car or the best house, but he's given you the best savior who is his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He's given you his spirit. He gives his spirit to all who believe in his son. He gives... To us, his holy and perfect word, he's lavished upon us every spiritual blessing that we need in Christ. Jacob's family, in our passage today, gets to live in Goshen. We get to live downtown in Gospel City every day. God himself and the riches of his provision for us in the gospel are always, in every moment, a part of our permanent circumstances. In Christ. We are always in Christ, and that is the best place in the universe to be in order to achieve the destiny that God has for you and for me if we are believers in Jesus. And even when we find ourselves in trials, we can know that God has designed those trials and allowed them to develop our character and to work those things for our good and for His glory. Even our trials are God giving us what is best for our growth. And can you look at your circumstances, even with their present difficulties and say with the psalmist, it is good for me that I am being afflicted so that I might learn your statutes and I might grow and have character qualities cultivated in me so that I might glorify you Lord in this very situation. And bring light to others. In our story today. We also see amazing grace from Joseph toward his brothers. That is so beautiful to behold. His brothers gave him the worst possible treatment. 22 years prior. And today we see him advocating for his brothers. To obtain the very best. Of the land of Egypt. And you can bet that Joseph's brothers are very mindful. Of what they deserve from Joseph. They had to be blown away by the grace that Joseph is showing to them as he advocates for them to get the very best, because in Joseph's mind, nothing but the very best will do for these brothers that I have forgiven for what they had done to me. And guys, Jesus Christ does the same thing for sinners. We're all sinners against God. We deserve God's eternal judgment. Yet he took the worst. Jesus took the worst of God's judgment upon himself at the cross, and he saves us when we repent and call upon the name of Jesus. And then upon saving us, Jesus intercedes for us with the Father. He serves as our advocate before the Father and ultimately elevates us to the highest heaven for all of eternity. What amazing grace this is. We have an even better brother than Joseph's brother's head, a greater deliverer whose grace is even more amazing towards those who have sinned against him. If you're here today and you've never believed in in Jesus Christ, I'm here to tell you that he is good and he is gracious towards sinners like me and you. Call upon his name And be saved today, right here, right now. You can be saved, and he will be thrilled to forgive you of your sins and to make you God's child and to give you God's very best for time and eternity. Finally, as we look at our passage today, it should be hugely instructive for us that Joseph wants his brothers to tell Pharaoh that they are shepherds Specifically, because shepherds are an abomination in Egypt Joseph knows that if his brothers are willing to wear this label then it will ensure that they're appropriately situated in exactly the place where they should dwell a place that is rich in pasture and appropriately separated from the corruption of Egyptian society if Joseph's brothers were not willing to bear this reproach for being shepherds, their unwillingness might have produced an outcome of them being assimilated into Egyptian society, which could have destroyed them in the end. Our world today does not look down on the occupation of shepherds like the Egyptian culture did, but our world today is offended by the good shepherd. And by the word of his cross, which brings salvation to sinners, just as in the first century, our world today is offended by the cross. To some, it is foolishness. To others, it is a scandal. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God into salvation. And I love the way the Apostle Paul thought. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 And two, he said to himself, you know what? To the world of my day, the cross is foolishness. So what will I preach? I'll preach the cross. And if I'm deemed foolish by some, that's okay. If my message scandalizes others, that's okay. Because that's what the gospel is supposed to do to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, this gospel will prove to be the power of God into salvation. And we all need to have that same mindset. We we need to brace ourselves to have the same mindset today. We need to preach Christ and him crucified. And we need to preach and believe and obey this book that Jesus Christ teaches us to hold to. And if us doing that causes candidates for president to want the church to lose its tax-exempt status, then so be it. If doing that puts us on the fringes of society, feeling like sojourners and aliens in our own land, then... So be it. The Bible tells us that we are sojourners and we are aliens anyway. And we make our biggest impact on our world when we actually live that way. Amen. This world is not our home. We are to be a nonconforming people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might shine as lights in a dark world while we await the exodus to come, which will be the biggest move of all when God takes us from here to our homeland, which is glory. Let's pray together. Lord, I fear that sometimes we grow too comfortable in this world and forget that we are aliens and strangers here. And there are temptations that many give in to that will conceal this or conceal that fact, about Christian belief or doctrine so as not to offend the sensibilities of the world when we forget, Lord, that sometimes it is the scandal of these things that the world reacts against that sometimes is there for our protection so that we will not be overly assimilated Be able to be a distinct people who are making an impact on our world by how different we are in matters that really count. Give us boldness to be who you have called us to be, even when we know that that will be an abomination to some who behold it. We thank you for the gracious Savior that you are. Our sins against you are worse than Joseph's brother's sins were against him. We all collectively participated in your own crucifixion, but You were raised from the dead and you are at the right hand of God and you're ready to save and do good to all who repent of their sin and call upon you. And I pray that you would touch the hearts of people in this room this morning to save, to give life where life is needed and draw men and women to yourself. Help us, Lord, in our lives as believers. Like, I, I mean, I pray for the leaders of our country that you would give them wisdom. The issues that face us today are extraordinarily complex that require the wisdom of Solomon. We pray that you would give wisdom to all those who serve in leadership on a federal and state and city level. Bless them with your wisdom from on high, Lord, and help them to choose what is best in serving the cause of righteousness and thwart any efforts by any of them to work against what is truly loving and righteous. I heard someone say recently, speaking of both political parties, that it's neither the donkey nor the elephant that can save only the lamb. And may we be governed by the grace of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, governed by your word, speaking with humility and with grace and charity toward all in such a way that will leave people on both the right and the left, feeling challenged by what they may see and hear in us as we seek to follow another way, a higher way. And help us to be a help to one another in this endeavor as well, Lord. Ultimately, we're asking that you would help us to shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation in which we live and to show forth your excellencies to all who have eyes to see. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you, receive these funds, do much with all that is given in this offering for your glory and for the spread of this message of salvation through Jesus Christ to the world. And at the same time, we give ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said.